Well, last week, uh, you'll remember, uh, we uh, said we were going to begin a series on looking at the law of God. And as we uh, spoke of that, we highlighted that there is um, a certain need for carefulness when we handle the law of God, uh, that we would be handling it rightly. And one of the things that we highlighted is that the law has a, uh, a multi-dimensional use to it. That the law is uh, something that is meant to reveal to us uh, the character of God. It is something that is meant to restrain evil. It is something that is meant to uh, drive us ultimately to Christ. It's something that is ultimately to show us how to live before God. But it's really that understanding that the law shows us what God demands. And when we think about the law, the law is something that confronts us with our own sins, our own shortcomings. And when we understand the law, it is ultimately preparing us for the need of a savior. You remember, uh, for instance, when we turned in the Gospel of Mark, one of the central stories in Mark is an encounter that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. There in the, the center of Mark's Gospel is this encounter where a man comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And when he asks Jesus that, he's, he's looking for something that he can actually accomplish that would give him a right standing with God. He's looking to the law to make himself right with God, which is the default of our mindset. We think if we're to be made right with God, then we must do something. And you remember that when Jesus heard that question, Jesus started to press him. Uh, and one of the things Jesus said is, you already know what is required of you. You already know what the standard of righteousness is. You know what is good. God's commands. And Jesus summarized many of the Ten Commandments by saying, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Jesus was drawing the man back to this is what God demands of you. Ultimately, to try to show this man that he fell short, that, that he couldn't use the law as a ladder to make himself right with God. And so Jesus was showing him that the law is ultimately something that is a schoolmaster. It is something that drives him outside of himself to see that he needs a savior. As we were looking at last time, uh, that by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the law is something that shows us our sin. It's something that is driving us to Christ. But the law is also something that is used in a multidimensional way. And it is something that is not um, abrogated. It's not something that is done away with once a person realizes that they have sinned. But now it takes on a purpose of helping a person to know how to live a life pleasing to God. Not to make themselves right with God, but rather how to express thanksgiving in a way that is pleasing in God's sight. You remember last time uh, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law. Meaning, don't think that I came to make the law disappear. Don't, make, don't think that I came to make the law dissolve into irrelevance. Jesus says, I came to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion, to fulfill its demands, and to realize its uh, design. So that what was expressed as God's will would be realized in the Lord Jesus himself. We would see God's will 
as something that is good and something that is to be delighted in, but ultimately to make a people that were zealous for good works as well. And so this evening we want to turn to the, uh, the Ten Commandments, understanding that we want to handle the law of God in a right way, not looking to it to make ourselves right like the rich young ruler, thinking, what do I have to do to get in the good books with God? but rather realizing that the law drives us to a realization of our sin and then ultimately prepares us uh, to seeing our need of Jesus. Ray Ortland uh, is a, a pastor in the United States, and he gives a very helpful uh, explanation as to how we should come to the, the Ten Commandments. He says, when you come to the Ten Commandments, you can appreciate the commandments of God by thinking about them in four different ways. The first is to think about the commandments as revealing to us. They, they reveal to us something about God's character. They're teaching us about the God who is. What kind of God is there that we are living before? The commandments tell us something about his will. The commandments are also informative because not only do they reveal something to us about God, they also confront us about ourselves. We start to learn about ourselves when we have the light of God's law shining on us. Now suddenly we're being exposed, we're being held up to a standard. We're beginning to see ourselves according to an objective standard. So we begin to learn about ourselves as well. So the law reveals something about God. It confronts us about ourselves. It also instructs us in the way to go. That's what we were singing about in Psalm 119. That your word is a, a, a way for me to live. That your, your laws are what I am to obey. And so I am to meditate on your law day and night. But then the law of God is not only revealing, it's not only confronting, it's not only instructive, but it's also, we said, a promise. And you remember how we looked at last time that Jeremiah spoke about a new covenant. And in the new covenant, God said, I will put my law in your heart so that the work of God would be that there would be a new orientation. There would be a desire in the believer to serve according to God's ways. That would only be partially realized in this life, but it is ultimately something that will be perfectly fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we're thinking about the, the commandments, we're seeing how it stretches in different ways. It's, it's leading us to see ourselves. It's leading us to understand God. It's helping us to look forward. But it's, it's always doing so by the light of God's truth and by God's will. Well, we want to come and we want to look at this first commandment uh, this evening in light of those four thoughts that Ortland gives. Revelation, confrontation, instruction, and promise. And we want to think about this first commandment uh, in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And what we want to see is because the Lord both creates and redeems sinners from their sins, we are to choose to serve him above all else. What does this command reveal to us about God? Very simply, it teaches us that God is relational. Something that we might take for granted, but the God who is is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer would once say. That there is a God, and he is not distant, but that he is engaged in his creation. You will have no other gods before me. 
This is a God who is deeply invested and engaged in the world that he has made. He is interacting with his creation. He is uh, relating with the people that he has made. There is this bond that exists between the you and the me. And so here he is emphasizing there is this connection point. Inevitably, our life has a relationship to God. The issue is not, do you want to have a relationship with God? But what kind of relationship do you have with the God who is? And here uh, we see that relational aspect uh, embedded even in the command itself. There is a God and we are to relate with him. But uh, more centrally, this command teaches us not only that God is relational, but that God is holy. That this commandment is teaching us that God alone is to be given glory and that he shares his glory with none other. Uh, this, this, is, this is God's way of helping us to ensure that we're living rightly in terms of the reality of the world we live in. That God is placing before us this understanding that there are only two categories to reality. There is the creator and there is the creation. And we should never blur these categories. We should always be able to keep distinct the creator from his creation and to keep the creation distinct from the creator, to be able to understand that God's glory is reserved only for him. God is the creator. God is Lord over all, and his glory he shares with none other. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me, is this saying that there are other gods that are in existence, that there are other gods competing? It's not actually saying that there are gods uh, that are competing like in the Greek mythology. What it's saying is, is that there are people who ascribe value to idols that are gods in name only. And those idols or those gods are not to be placed on par with uh, the Lord himself. And so here's a rebuke to turning to the idols around them and to serving or giving them the glory. Again and again in the Old Testament, we see how the Lord is concerned that his glory would be preserved for himself. That God is protective of what rightly belongs to him and helping people to live understanding what is true. To be able to give glory to God alone and not uh, to uh, giving glory that belongs to God to an aspect of creation. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. First Kings at the dedication of the temple, it says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. This refrain comes again and again in the scriptures. There is only one God, the creator, and to him belongs the glory attributed to God. Everything else falls into the category of creation. And we should not keep that we should not blend those two categories or confuse those two categories. There is not then a pantheon of many gods, but only one God who has revealed himself in creation and in the history of redemption. 
But also it's saying to us that this God who is, who is jealous for his own glory, for, for being honored for who he is, and not sharing his glory uh, with any other, uh, that this God is calling people to live before him, before the face of God. That is, that they would not compartmentalize all of life into little boxes and then to only acknowledge God in one small part of it. As though we have a box for religion, and then we have a box for my career, and then we have a box for my relationships, and then we have a box for my entertainment. And I acknowledge God in that first box of my religion, but then I don't acknowledge God in all these other boxes. Here it is saying, you shall have no other gods before me, that all of life is lived before God and that if we start to look at life and we compartmentalize it and we separate God from the way that we look at our gifts or our calling or our career or our relationships we're beginning to set ourselves up to looking at something as an end in and of itself that we begin to take good things even gifts from God and making them into ultimate things and so here is this emphasis that we are to live before God, recognizing that he alone uh, is God and nothing else. And so uh, we're not to, uh, to divert from God's commandments. And when we do so, it is a, a sign, uh, that, a signal that we're turning uh, to idolatry. Now, not everyone um, is convinced that there is a God to acknowledge. Some may remain skeptical or at least passive with respect to the need of honoring God in their life. Maybe you're sitting here this evening as someone who is skeptical about whether or not God is necessary for your life, whether we need to acknowledge him uh, to live a, a self-fulfilling life. Uh, John Dixon uh, makes a, a helpful point, though, on this, that a failure to honor God as holy is problematic. He makes the argument that monotheism, the belief in one God is intimately connected with morality. That the belief in one God serves as the, the foundation for our beliefs in right behavior. That apart from a, a coherent, ultimate reality imprinted on this world, we have no objective basis for determining right and wrong behavior. Now, what is John Dixon saying when he says that? John Dixon is not saying that you need to believe in God to be a decent citizen in your community. John Dixon is not saying that you need to believe in God to be a nice person or to be a good person in a relative sense. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a capacity for goodness. What John Dixon is saying is, is that apart from a belief in God, you have no basis for saying why someone should act a certain way or for saying what is right and what is wrong. That ultimately, without a belief in God, you're left only with preferences. And so Dixon is saying that it is problematic to simply skip out on this notion of acknowledging God that we need to have uh, an acknowledgement of God 
to have that basis. Now, many people may uh, see uh, certain actions as right and wrong, but apart from a belief in God, we're living on borrowed capital. We're, we're assuming things, but we can't explain why those things are wrong. We may prefer them to be right, or that we may prefer them to be wrong, but we can't explain why those things ought to be wrong universally and objectively. Meaning by that, that they're wrong whether or not other people agree, or they're right whether or not other people agree. That it's not about counting noses, but it's rather by saying, this is right. Otherwise, we're simply left with this idea of saying, I would prefer it if we did X, and therefore I would prefer you to agree with X. A belief in God is first. And as John Dixon goes on to say, this first commandment is first. The worship of God is first. Not only in terms of priority, acknowledging our creator, but it's first in terms of basis. That apart from this, all the other commandments fall apart. All these other commandments are built on the, the acknowledgement of the living God. His character is revealed in these commandments. And the reason why we are to live a certain way is because these are a, an expression of what is good and right and true uh, as our God has revealed to us. So uh, we see here that God is revealing himself as holy. He is to be acknowledged. He is the creator. We are to live acknowledging the world that he has created. But if we live ignoring this God, it only introduces problems because we can't explain why anyone should agree or why people should act a certain way or why people should believe what they believe. This first commandment gives us that framework for understanding how to live in God's world. Uh, so Dixon goes on to say, uh, it is first in terms of priority, uh, but it is also uh, um, first in terms of giving us a coherent reality of all the other commandments. So there is what it reveals to us about God. He is a God whose glory he shares with no other. He is devoted unto himself, and he is protecting his people to be able to live acknowledging that truth. When we acknowledge God, then it's going to shape how we live in this world. It's going to shape how we order all things. There is a connection we can draw from belief in God and a high view of objective morality. But what does this commandment confront us about ourselves? Uh, it teaches us that we're servants. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That preface to the Ten Commandments is very important because the giving of the law comes in the context of a relationship. It comes as the result of God's redemption. That God bore them on eagles' wings, as it says in chapter 19. He's already rescued them from slavery. God is a God who has redeemed them. And now, being their redeemer, they are to respond to his lordship. They're, they're now coming as servants of their master. They are to express their devotion to their rescuer in this way. 
And so we are uh, people that are servants by nature. We didn't create ourselves. We are not autonomous beings. We don't have all control. We are the, we are the creation of Almighty God. And so we owe God acknowledgement. But more than that, we are servants of God who are to live in light of his work. Uh, we are to acknowledge him who gives us life and sustains us moment by moment. So this commandment confronts us with the truth that we are uh, called to live uh, before God as servants. But more than that, it confronts us with the truth that we are prone to idolatry. Why would God command us, you shall have no other gods before me, unless there was a tendency for us to do that very thing, to go and to make other gods, to go and to worship other idols uh, in the place of God. Uh, here it highlights that we are prone to look elsewhere for our security and for our meaning and for our direction. Perhaps idol worship sounds primitive to you, uh, maybe it sounds like just someone who bows down to uh, wooden statues or to golden uh, monuments. And we think of idol worship in very concrete terms. But even if all the physical statutes, uh, statues and idols were destroyed, it would not do away with idolatry. Because idolatry is not so much a work of the hands, it's an issue of the heart. Idolatry is whatever our God is, whatever we assign our meaning to in life, whatever we assign our security to, whatever we fixated our hopes on, whatever is most important to us, that is our God. As human beings, we cannot avoid ascribing worth. As human beings, we will devote ourselves to something great, and we will make it all-encompassing of what our life is devoted to. Whatever we say is most important to us, whatever we look to for our greatest security, whatever our hopes are in, that is your God. But if it's not the true living God, then it's an idol. And the reason why God says, you shall have no other gods before me, is because we are prone to looking to idols rather than to God. We are prone to putting our hope, our security, our meaning in relationships, in our notoriety, in our success, in our wealth, in anything. That's why, that's why our, our, our forefathers used to say things like, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's, it's constantly churning out new idols to worship. There's always something that we can say, this, this is great. This is what my life is for. This is what I will worship and I will serve all the days of my life. And God is saying to us, we are to acknowledge he is our God. He is our creator. We are to honor him above all else. J.I. Packer says, your God is whatever you look to, seek after, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Uh, and so uh, it is highlighting to us an idol doesn't have to be something you can even see. Uh, an idol is something uh, that uh, fixates us and ultimately something that we are living for. 
So <clears throat> it, it begs the question, what is most important in our life? Or more specifically, is God most important in your life? Do you acknowledge God above all else? Because the law of God tells us we are to serve, we are to live before God as our, our number one priority. Before me, you will have no other gods. You will learn to worship before the Lord. Him alone you will give glory to. But not only does this command expose us to the fact that we are uh, prone to making idols, but it also highlights that we're prone to syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism is when we blend or when we hold uh, a mixture or a, a multiple of items together. You think of Israel. Israel did that on a continuous basis. It wasn't always that they were drawn to forsake God, although there were times they did. It was the fact that they wanted to have both and. They would continue to offer their sacrifices, but their hearts were also being drawn in a different direction. But here this commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. God is not just saying, you must acknowledge me, but he's saying, you must not acknowledge other gods. It's, it's an either-or. It's a radical choice that is being impressed in this command. That we are not to uh, simply serve the Lord and to continue to worship the gods of Egypt and the gods of Mesopotamia. That's what Egypt was doing. They did it even after Sinai. And as we were reading there in the days of Joshua, at the end of Joshua's life, they still have their idols. Despite all that they passed through, Joshua still has to say to them, if you're going to serve God, then put away your idols. We, we see that verse all the time on plaques uh, in people's houses. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. But what's the context to that? Choose this day whom you will serve. If you're going to serve the gods of Egypt, then the anger of God will be upon you. Joshua was saying it's an either or. You are to acknowledge God above all else and not simply to try and have all the gods uh, uh, in your life. That God alone is to be worshipped. So idol worship didn't disappear even from the covenant uh, uh, covenant people. Again, you think about that compartmentalizing. When we start making our boxes, it, it's very easy for us to simply try to have one box, my religion box, but then I can still have my other boxes. And if I look at those boxes apart from God, good things can become ultimate things. And then I can be drawn after these things as though they are idols themselves. They become gods to me. And so there is a real press here. It's not just saying, do you acknowledge the living God? But are you allowing other things to become more important to you than God himself? Do you live your whole life before God, saying, of all things that I have in this life, God alone is first, that I serve him above all these things? And in this way, we begin to see that the, the commandment is actually exposing 
not just a temptation, but something of a constant battle because our affections are pulled in different directions. Handling money over time can closely get more and more attached to us. Becoming more and more well-liked can become something of a danger when it becomes an issue where we have to take a stand on issues. We can be drawn after good things, but they can become enticing, and they can ultimately draw us into a compromised position. And this shows us again the problem of our own human heart. So this command, it teaches us something about God. He is the creator. To him alone is to be uh, given glory. He is holy and devoted unto his own glory. It teaches us something about ourselves. Uh, we are compromised in our loyalties. We are people that are prone to idolatry, putting our hope in the things of this world rather than trusting in the Lord. But this first command uh, also uh, finds its fulfillment not in us, but it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus fulfills this law by living a life consecrated unto the Father. That Jesus' desire was to glorify his Father. And his whole life was marked by this consecrated devotion of obedience. That he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the outcome of that is, is that his death atones for the sins of his people. And that he brings that pardon of our guilt. And the result is, is that Jesus is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, and then sends the Spirit. The Spirit who then changes hearts and gives a new affection to those who have come to taste of God's grace. That Jesus uh, sends the Spirit uh, to cause uh, a new desire to be brought in the lives of his people. They delight themselves in the revelation of God's glory in Christ. And they themselves, to a degree, will be able to consecrate themselves, saying God deserves all glory and praise. That they will desire in this life to put God first. They will continue to struggle with sin, with idols in their life. But their longing is for God's name to be glorified. And so this first commandment is really about adoration. Uh, it is about how God has a right to rule over us. It is about submitting uh, to his lordship. But it is also about submitting to his work of salvation. To adore him uh, despite our compromised record. It is to look to God for the pardon of our sins because Jesus has obeyed. It is to turn to God with our troubles rather than depending on ourselves. It is to give thanks to God for all the good gifts that we have, seeing that all of life is to be lived before God and not just the religion box. This commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, comes up again during Jesus' earthly life. You remember when Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus was pressing people to say, what is it that you love most? Are you making good things into ultimate things? Or do you see that Jesus is worthy of all? That he is to be cherished above all because he comes to fulfill the law on our behalf. And that by his spirit, he awakens, he creates this new desire 
where we will gladly and willingly say, as for me and for my house, I desire to serve the Lord, that he would be given all glory and praise. What do you love most? Have you come to recognize not only that there is a God to acknowledge, but that this God is a redeemer who saves sinners like you? We can only glorify one thing, ultimately. We can only have one master. We'll either enthrone God or we'll enthrone a creature. The law here drives us to a realization that we are prone to worship the wrong thing. Christ came to show us the glory of God, to set us free from sin, and to cause us to delight in God's grace ultimately ultimately.